We've been working on a sermon series uh, called Blue Collar God, which we ended last week, but we're really only halfway through our, our work series. And in the course of that sermon series, we came up with what we think is a biblical definition of work. It goes like this. Work is doing something with what God gives you so that the world thrives and Jesus is glorified. And I, on this day, I just have to acknowledge, even though you don't normally see the, the work of the fruit of, of his labors, if we're talking about people whose, whose work has caused our world to thrive and Jesus to be glorified, there are not very many people who would be closer to the top of the list in my mind than David Asplund. Many of you may not know him, but a lot of you do. He is the best minister of music I've ever worked with. And, uh, and the reason is, he was not only a great musician, not only a great musician, he's also got, he really was a minister to his people. He loved his choir, loved his church, loved the Lord, and so it was never about performance for him. It was about presenting the very best he could of his gifts that the Lord might be glorified and that we might be, and that we might thrive. So I just have to say that it's appropriate on this day when we're acknowledging that as David retires and makes his way, uh, into something new, uh, that, He's been a, a great example of that for us. I thought you might also be interested to know, even though uh, uh, this is primarily for the first service, we have uh, selected the person who's going to step into his shoes, and that is Margie Dickerson. So Margie has been raised up, and she's going to become our new minister of music. So... How many of you had a chance to look at the nifty new banners that we have? You ought to look at them when you go outside of the the traffic circle. They are pretty cool. And uh, this signifies that we are beginning a new uh, sermon series together. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how God designed work before sin came into the world, before the fall. We, we, we watched as, and discovered that God is a, a God who works. He created all of these things, not because he had to, because he, he wanted to. And because we are created in God's image, we are workers too. And we don't work just because we have to or just because it's a punishment. We were designed to work because it's part of the blessedness of creation. When we work, when we do what we were created to do, we feel God's pleasure and we experience the fullness of, of what God intended for us to experience. So when we go into what we do on, on a Monday morning, that ought to be an opportunity for us to have a sense that we are worshiping God just as surely as we worshiping, are worshiping Him here on a Sunday. You know, whether it's a cubicle or a, a, a medical office or a, a classroom, we ought to have a sense that I am doing my work that the world might thrive and Jesus is glorified and it doesn't stop here on a Sunday morning. That is a hugely important thing for Christians to come to because for so long, really, this has been characterized as the holy stuff. What you do here in this tiny little chunk of your week, this is what's holy and the rest of it is the real world. The rest of it is the secular world. In in the real story, there is no sacred secular divide. And what you do tomorrow morning matters just as much as what you're doing here. Or at least it should. But the reality is we do live in a broken world. Adam and Eve fell. They, they ate that forbidden fruit. And ever since then, all of creation has been impacted by that fall, including the work world. And so that thing on Monday morning that ought to bring us life and a sense of fulfillment and purpose that ought to make us feel like we're, we're touching on, on our destiny, that for which we are created, it has been, become an opportunity to cause anxiety and bring about oppression and discouragement, and distress, and heartbreak, and disappointment. There are a lot of you out there who, going into work tomorrow, you're not going to experience any of the things I've described. For you, it's going to feel like a toxic work environment. 
where being a Christian is, is dangerous for really declaring who you are and you have no sense of the, of the value and the purpose that we have been talking about. It's a, it's a different world for many of you. It doesn't bless you at all, your work. So for us to just talk about what we've talked these last five weeks and to ignore that reality is not to be where you are. So for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about this real world now. Not the world before the fall, not what God created, not what he intended it to be prior to sin entering the world. We're going to talk about what it's like right now in this world, where work sometimes doesn't bless you, where work does not seem holy or sacred sometimes. We're going to talk about that. How many of you have seen the TV show Undercover Boss? You know the premise of the show, the CEO of some big company like 7-Eleven or Waste Management, he, he goes un- undercover. He puts on a disguise and goes incognito as a trainee on his, in his own company or her own company. And so they've got some, some low, uh, level, uh, manager who's, who's, who's training the, the CEO of the company to do the dirtiest and the lowliest of the jobs. And of course, in the, in the process, the CEO is getting a very undercover look at what things really are like on the ground level of his company. We've been fascinated by that, but we Christians shouldn't be too fascinated because this story was told 2,000 years ago. The, the CEO of the universe did the very same thing, didn't he? Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came incognito. He came in disguise and he entered right into the brokenness of our world. Every part of it, including the workplace of his disciples. We don't think of about that, about it that way, but, but Jesus was right there in the midst of their work world. He was on their fishing boats and he was next to their tax tables and he was in their fields where they harvested their crops. Jesus expressed a great deal of interest in their work lives. When we think about the teaching of Jesus, we often think about spiritual things like heaven and like love and like faith. And of course, he did teach about all of those things. But if you take a closer look, you discover Jesus had a lot to say about that that work that we do on a Monday morning. A lot to say about our work life. So, we're going to pay attention to some of these stories about Jesus teaching on what it means to work. Just imagine if Jesus sidled up next to you in disguise, in your cubicle, in your workplace, in your clinic, in your, in your school. What would he discover about the way you work? What would he discover about your work environment? And what would Jesus have to teach you about how it is that we ought to work in a way that causes the world to thrive and Jesus to be glorified? So that's what we're going to do for the next five weeks, and I hope you'll find it uh, valuable. And this morning's text, we start with one of my favorite stories that comes only in the Gospel of John. So turn with me to John chapter 13, please. John chapter 13, New Testament, second, the last third of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, page 910, 910. I'm going to read just the first three verses of this. Every word of this matters, and so I want you to pay close attention. I'm going to come back and look at this in more detail before we press on, all right? John 13, beginning verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Remember that? Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Remember that. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, take these words and bring them to life for us that we might hear your word for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to stop just in these first three verses because I want you to understand the grandness with which Jesus introduces, uh, with, with which John introduces this story. It is really, there's a whole level of gravity and grandness that you can kind of just read right over because we're going to jump to the important stuff. Listen to verse 3 one more time. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Think about what John is saying there. Jesus had power, had authority over everything. Not some things, all things. That is a huge declaration. And he goes on to say, and Jesus came from God. So he's a messenger come from God with this huge amount of authority. But he said further, and he was about to leave. His time was short. He was wrapping up his mission, whatever it was on earth. That's how John introduces the second half of, of, the, of the gospel of John. This upper room discourse. This is a hugely emo- important pivot point. Jesus has this authority. He's sent from God. He's about to return to God. If this was a film, the music behind the the scene would be getting louder and more and more intense because you clearly have the sense that the the punchline is going to be significant. So, because of all these things, so what? What would you expect to hear? With this power, the timeliness of it, his the fact he's going to be returning every single minute is precious. What do you expect the so to be? Maybe it'd be something like this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, that he was returning to God. So, Jesus stood before them and revealed his plan of conquest. How he would rise and he would take control over the Roman authorities and he would establish his kingdom on earth. And then he assigned each one of his disciples to their role in governing the kingdom. You might say, that sounds kind of silly. But that is exactly what you might have expected. Think about where this was happening. This is Jerusalem we're talking about. This was the, this not up in the little old bucolic Galilee. This is in the center of the political action. This is where everything was hot. And think about this. How did Jesus come into Jerusalem? It was only a few days ago on what we call Palm Sunday. Remember? He came down from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. And how did he enter? He entered on a colt, a donkey, the foal. Every Jew who was president saw Jesus enter those days earlier into Jerusalem. Every Jew knew what was being said. Because this was a prophecy directly out of Zechariah. Zechariah said, you want to know when your Messiah is coming? You watch out because he's going to come riding on a donkey. You just keep your eye out. And for the first time in Jesus' ministry on Palm Sunday, he revealed himself to his people. He declared himself to be what many had suspected all along. When he got on that donkey and rode down that hillside and received the praise of the people, here's what Jesus was saying. You're right. I am the Messiah. Here I am. Let's get busy. That's exactly what he was saying. That's the context for what we have taking place. But there's more to it. What feast were they getting ready to celebrate? Passover. 
Think about Passover. Passover was the most important of Jewish feasts. Passover remembered the day when God delivered his people out of where? Out of Egypt in a miraculous way. Remember? Ten different plagues that he sent in order that his people might be set free. And he did so under the powerful leadership of someone that he had called, he had sent. And that was Moses. Surely that's what this was going to be about then. When John introduces this section of his gospel, surely John is going to introduce Jesus as this powerful Moses-like figure who has come from God with all of this authority. And surely Jesus is going to now use this Passover Eve to give them their marching orders for revolution. The, The time is perfect, isn't it? Surely that's what we're going to read next, right? Not hardly. Take a look at verse 3 and let's continue with the reading. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who's had a bath needs only wash his feet. His whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. So he doesn't steer away from that. I am teacher. I am your Lord. You say that rightly. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It was December uh, December 14th in 2008. President Bush was in Iraq for the signing of a treaty, and they had called a press conference for that purpose. Some of you might remember what happened. Take a look. One of the television correspondents at this news conference in which the president is there on an unannounced visit, part of the ceremonial signing of the agreement, and you see it there, one right after the other. One, one of the journalists... Obviously, it's never polite to throw anything at heads of state when they're visiting. But in this case, particularly in the Middle East, to throw not one but two shoes... It was intended and it was understood as a supreme insult to our president. 
And you need to understand that culture to know what an insult it was because in this culture, the feet and shoes are considered ceremonially and religiously and culturally unclean. It's why Muslims remove their shoes before they come into their church, their mosque. They would be horrified that you're sitting in a holy place with your shoes on right now. It is why before they pray, they wash their feet. They have a washing ceremony that includes the washing of their feet. It is why when you're in Muslim culture, you will never see a Muslim cross their feet, cross their legs like this as they're seated, because you might see the bottoms of their shoes and that would be disgusting. It is why when Saddam Hussein was deposed, you saw pictures of them pulling down statues and beating on the statues with their shoes. And this stat, this picture that you have here of a shoe sitting on the head of Saddam Hussein is not accidental. It was intended as the supreme indignity. Are you getting this? We Americans, we find feet a little embarrassing. We think that our feet kind of look weird and feet smell bad and sometimes we step in yucky stuff with our feet. But feet are more than yucky in the Middle East. They are degrading. And in the days of Jesus, when everyone walked everywhere in open-toed sandals, sharing the same road of animals, it was more than degrading. It was disgusting. Which is why the very first act of hospitality that was offered to anyone who came to have dinner at a house was to remove their sandals and wash their feet for them. Why? Because all meals were served this way. You sat on the ground and your feet up were up like this. Someone was eating next to those filthy old feet of yours. And so it was an act of real hospitality, not only for you, but for the person who was going to have to eat their pita bread right next to you. And this humiliating task was always performed by the slave who was the lowest on the slave totem pole in the house. And if you happen to have a non-Jew, a Gentile slave, so much the better. Because as far as Jews were concerned, Gentiles were the dogs. They actually called them the dogs. So if you've got a job that's worthy of a dog, who better to do it than a slave who is no better than a dog? That's the context for this story. And when Jesus takes off his robe and wraps a towel around himself and begins to wash the filthy feet of all 12 of his disciples, did you notice that? Including the man who's going to betray him to death. And then wiping those feet off on the towel that was on his, that was wrapped around him. Jesus had assigned himself the lowest of low jobs of any of the slaves. How many of you have ever worked in that kind of a job? In just a scummy, scuzzy, filthy, thankless, or maybe it was just monotonous or it was just invisible. Any of you ever had that kind of job? Come on, I know you have. Anyone ever pump septic tanks for a living? Raise your hand. There you go, right there, baby. Anyone ever pick up garbage, other people's garbage for a living? Anyone ever um, shovel stalls in a barn? Anyone do that? Yep. Yep. Anybody, anybody ever work in a slaughterhouse? Anyone? Call, call it out. What other kind of filthy, thankless job did you do? Call it out nice and loud. Fish washing. Telemarketer. That's... <laughs> you just lowered the bar another, another notch, didn't you? Diaper changer. Pastor? Who said Pastor. Amen. 
But let's go beyond the filth of the foot washing for a moment. I want to take this a little bit deeper. Obviously, when a slave was doing this kind of work, they were right down there below. It doesn't get much more intimate than having someone wash your feet. But you know that the person who was washing, they never acknowledged him. They would be talking to another guest or talking to the host. They likely didn't even deign to look down at whoever it was that was performing this menial task. And they certainly never, it never crossed their mind to thank them for what they were doing, that labor, and the person that was doing it was both figuratively and literally beneath them. Do you get this? Do you understand this? We don't deal with much of our own filth in our culture anymore. The contents of our toilet flow mysteriously and magnificently out of our sight and out of our smell to some magical kingdom where fairies take care of it. Hallelujah Hallelujah is right. We don't slaughter our own meat. I grew up on a farm, so I've seen it done, but I bet most of us have never seen the cow that you eat slaughtered in front of your eyes, shot in the head, raised up, split open, cleaned out. It's, we go to the, the grocery store and it just magically appears in plastic wrap. Many of the tasks that are necessary for our comfort, tasks which were once considered unclean and degrading, now they're conveniently hidden from our sight. We don't think about them. But there are still plenty of unseen laborers in our world who are working to make our lives better and more comfortable and safer. And they go about their work out of our sight. Or even when they are right in front of us like those feet washers, we often don't really see them at all because we don't realize that they are human beings. We see them as our cashiers, as our clerks, as our waitresses, as our security guards, as our custodians, as our nannies. They have been called at this time in their lives to be our servants, to care for our needs, to clean up our messes, which, and they are largely ignored and largely unseen and largely unthanked. This powerful story about Jesus when he took on the lowliest and the most thankless of servants' jobs, how much we can learn about work from him, from about our work today. First of all, I would say it speaks to those of us who serve in such jobs or who ever have. Perhaps today, even now, you find your work to be filthy or hard or thankless or monotonous. Maybe, truth be told, you find your job embarrassing. It's not something you want to do for the rest of your life and you just as soon get out of it, but it's a way to put beans on the table. You want something that's more fulfilling, more grand, but for now it's where God has called you. And so this passage, Jesus in this passage, wants to remind you who serve in such jobs of our biblical definition of work. Does what you do help the world thrive and give glory to Jesus? When you clean a toilet or shampoo a rug or assist someone in the store or check them out or work the security shift of graveyard, or clean someone else's house, or pick up someone else's garbage, or clean, change someone else's kid's diaper. When you rotate an Alzheimer's patient in their bed so that they don't get bed sores, does that help the world to thrive? Does it? Absolutely it does. 
If the world is a sweeter smelling, smoother running, less confusing, safer, more pleasant place because of your work, you've helped the world to thrive. And if you perform those labors with pride, with a smile on your face, with a determination to do it as best you can, with a sense that everything you do, every word, every deed, you, this is your awareness that you're going to do this as if you were doing it for the Lord Jesus himself. Does that bring glory to him, yes or no? Absolutely it does. Especially when we look at this passage. Especially when Jesus chose to set the example by willingly and graciously taking on the most filthy and degrading job himself. We have, a, we have a relatively new pope, Pope Francis. And one of the things that has endeared Pope Francis to many in the world is that this most powerful of men, this head of the billion Catholics, has chosen to lead through servanthood. He washes Muslim women prison feet. He refuses the opulence of his office. He sleeps in servant quarters. Pity the poor Pope that follows him. Right? In other words, he lives like Jesus lived. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he dignified the work of every person who takes on unpleasant or thankless tasks. The world might view such work as demeaning or degrading or beneath us, but Jesus declares this work is honorable and it matters. And all who perform it may hold their heads high because they join me in the ranks of the thankless but essential workers of this world. If you're doing work that the world might consider second rate, and students, you're going to do some of that work. You might be doing some of that work right now. That's going to be the way that you work yourself into your careers, to do thankless, demeaning work. And if you're doing that, when you're doing that, Jesus says you hold your head up high. There's nothing shameful about that kind of work. It is blessed. It is good. And Christ esteems you. He esteems everyone who does it. But this passage doesn't speak just to those who are doing this work. It also speaks to those who receive this work. Did you see that? Who's the character that teaches something about that to us in this story? Yep. Did you notice how awfully Peter responded to what Jesus did? He was mortified that Christ would do such a thing. He would have nothing of it. Now, of course, Jesus, there was a double meaning here. Not only was he literally washing manure off of the disciples' feet, he was also symbolizing the spiritual washing that only he could do. What he was about to do on the cross was going to wash them clean, make them clean from all of their sins. But Peter didn't have a clue about that. He wasn't anywhere close to the deep spiritual truth of that. All he could think about is he could not stand the thought that Jesus was doing this embarrassing thing to him. And so he talks back to the Lord again. He did that a lot. This time it's no. Imagine saying that to Jesus. No. No, Lord of the universe, you shall never. You know, anything you're going to fill in next in that sentence is going to be a loser, right? Anytime you say, Jesus, you shall never, you shall never do this, he says. You shall never wash my feet. Do you understand what he was really saying there? Peter was saying, I will let some worthless Gentile slave wash my feet. I'm okay with that, with a nobody, with a nothing, with a faceless 
insignificant slave. Yeah, that's fine. But you're too important, Jesus. You are too respected to do such lowly labor. And it makes me uncomfortable to receive this service from you. That is the work that belongs to the invisible slave, not to an honored rabbi. This isn't proper. That's what Peter really was saying. He reveals what he really thinks about that kind of work in his response to Jesus. I want you to hear this. Kids, I want you to hear this. I have always believed that the way that people treat the servants in their life says as much about their character as anything else they do. Hear this. I believe it from my soul. I'm convinced that the way, when you watch how people treat the servants in their life, it says more about their character than all of their language put together. The way you treat the clerk at the store. The way you treat your waitress. The way you treat the custodian. The way you treat your secretary. That tells me more about who you really are as a person than any of your fancy talk or claims. Do you bless them with a smile? Do you offer your heartfelt gratitude for doing what is necessary to make your life more pleasant, more comfortable, so that you don't have to do that stuff? Or do you snap at them and sneer at them and demand more of them and be disgusted when they don't do it quickly enough? I spoke to, I spoke to several waiters, actually, and they tell me, Guess which shift is the absolute worst shift to be scheduled to in a restaurant? Sunday afternoon. And why is that? Because all of the church people go to the restaurant. And they said that those after church folks are the most demanding, least pleasant, and cheapest tippers of anyone throughout the whole week. What a wonderful witness for Jesus Christ. We are just drawing every one of those non-believers, waitresses and waiters right into the kingdom by the way we treat them, aren't we? What a shame. What a shame that we who serve the, the kneeling foot washer would behave in such a condescending and scornful manner towards those who serve us. About 10 years ago, I, there was a church that was coming after me, wanted me to be their pastor. And I wasn't interested. I wasn't looking for it. I was happy. I felt loved here and felt like there was still ministry left to be done. But because of some circumstances, I began to wonder if maybe God was calling me to make a change. So I tried to be open to it. Cindy and I were praying about it. And I got to tell you that that process was very disturbing and very conflictual for me. It put me in a real sense of conflict, in part because this was one of the biggest and uh, wealthiest churches in the country. It would have meant a big pay jump. It would have meant radio and TV broadcast of my sermons. It would have meant a huge staff. And it would have meant prestige. And I didn't want those things to impact my decision about whether to take a church. But they just those enticements just could not help but enter into the thinking. It made it hard. At one point, I, I flew down to, to visit the church and to check it out and to meet their people. And while I was there, they were kind of putting on the ritz, showing me the whole thing. While I was there, one of the things I noticed was this. I noticed how they treated their custodians. These were the bigwigs in the church. The elders, the power brokers in this big, big, rich church, powerful church. And I watched the way they treated their custodians. They were invisible to them. My host didn't speak to them. They didn't acknowledge them. 
It was as if they didn't exist. And in the end, I said, no, thank you. Because I did not want to be a pastor in a culture that treated their servants that way. I wonder, I hope, I pray that the Chapel Hill tables at the local restaurants today will be different. Don't you? Shouldn't we be different? I talk about you as the sweetheart church, and you are, but should not that sweetness ooze out into the lives of those around you? The lives who, of those who depend upon you for their living. My hope is that we will witness to those waiters and waitresses today in the way that we smile to them, the way that we thank them, the way that, they, that we tip them. Christians ought to be the most generous tippers in the world. It ought to be reflected in the way that we complain. Sometimes you have a right to complain. There's a way to do it. Will that be the case for us? Or how about this? How about right within our own walls? We have a wonderful team of servants who wash and they clean and they they pick up and they lock up and they secure our property. Do you notice them? Amanda... And Dave, and Ryan, and Jared, and Lee, and Krista, and Candy, and James, and Mike, and Matt. Do you see them? Do you know their name? Do you thank them for their service to you? Do you thank them for helping your world and your church to thrive? Wouldn't it be great if Chapel Hill had the reputation in this community of noticing and thanking and acknowledging and smiling and tipping and appreciating those people who serve us? Wouldn't it be great if one of the things we were known for was the generosity of spirit and the grace with which we treated those who served us? I think it'd be great. And so I got an idea. We got an idea that we want to share with you. Pull this out of your bulletin, this yellow thing. We're calling this a great work card. Here's what I want you to do with this. And we can provide more. In fact, we need to remember every week to have some extras. I want you to slip this in your purse or slip this in your pocket. I want you to take it with you. And I want you to put your head on a swivel and you watch the way people serve you. Watch the the waiter, watch the cashier, watch the clerk at the store, watch the the person who washes your car before they go through the the car wash. Keep an eye out. And you find someone who works with such enthusiasm, such energy, such gratitude and joy that they just stand out. They're just a great worker. Wouldn't it be great if you caught someone doing well, caught someone doing good, and and you acknowledged it. So this is your chance. Take the top page of this off. Cut it, you know, tear it off. And write a little note, get their name. It'd be nice if you actually knew knew their name. Get their name. Write a little note to give it to them. Just as a a, a way of of honoring them. What will that do to their day? Say, I I just want you to know, I I noticed how well you work. You blessed me. 
And then if you'll go to the extra effort on the bottom page, write down the contact information that we're asking for there, turn it into the church, and here's what we'll do. We'll send a personalized letter to every one of those persons. And we will thank them for how they have served our community in the good way that they do their work. Whatever it is, we will thank them. And then we're going to invite them to come on June 29th. And we're going to tell them, we're going to, whether you're here or not, we're going to mention you by name in our worship service as a great worker in Gig Harbor. And then we're going to, we're going to throw a party for you. So we're going to have a, a breakfast between the services. You're, and you're, there, it's on us. Please come. Now, I don't know how many people are going to show up for that meal. I don't know how many of these I'm going to get, but I, wouldn't it be something if 1,400, 1400 Chapel Hill Billies said, I'm going to put my head on a swivel, I'm going to keep an eye out for good people, and I'm going to bless them with this. Wouldn't that be good? Can't you imagine the blessing, the way that our community would thrive, because all of you said, I'm going to watch for people who do well, and I'm going to catch them doing it. So I hope you'll do that. I hope you will take that seriously and and let's celebrate people who do good work. This message, I think, in summary, this message says, it speaks in a couple ways. First of all, if you are a servant, if you are working in in a faceless, thankless, invisible job, this message cries out, lift up your chin, lift up your head. Do what you do with pride and with, with dignity because Jesus honors your work. The Jesus who knelt down and washed manure off of feet, he says, you go get them. And if you are the recipient of that service, and all of us are at some time in the week, here's the deep biblical principle. Be nice. Be nice. Treat these people with dignity. Know their name. Thank them. Appreciate them. Do you not think that would be one of the greatest witnesses for Christ that you could offer? I want to remind you of what the last words of our text. Here's what Jesus said one more time. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May Gig Harbor thrive. Because our people are on the lookout for great workers. Before we close, I'd invite our prayer team to come forward. I thought that we'd get, get practice in this by offering this opportunity. At the table in the back, we're going to have a thank you station. For the pictures of our facility team, the ones who make this place so beautiful every time you show up magically. Would you take the time before you jump in your car and head off to whatever is going to be so important? Would you take the time to go back there and pick up a thank you note and just write a thank you to our staff? Some member of our staff say thank you for what you do to serve us, to make us comfortable, to make us safe. Bless them today. Let's practice being people of gratitude, all right? The the fact is that if we have not developed this habit, this is something that some of us don't even recognize about ourselves. We are snippy and demanding and harsh and we don't even know it. And it's not going to be a matter of us just changing our mind, although that doesn't hurt. It's going to be a matter of the Holy Spirit really taking hold of that part of your life and bringing it to your awareness and transforming that. And like everything we ask you to do, we can't, we can't possibly do it if it's just all our sheer grit and determination. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. So raise your hands up and let's ask that Spirit to bless us again. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's nice people said, Amen. Amen.